The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I am very much a believer uh, that if my characters have a better idea, then that's magic. They've become alive enough to argue with me, to have an opinion. And I don't squash my own magic. Greetings, scribes. Welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, sending you positivity and prolificness per usual during these unprecedented times. This week, the number one New York Times bestselling author of paranormal fiction, Laurel K. Hamilton, took a break to talk with me about why her first fantasy novel nearly tanked her career, some of the systems that go into her world building, and why writers need to stay off the internet and protect their writing time. A trailblazing, genre-bending author of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series and the Mary Gentry series is considered an influential pioneer to the urban fantasy genre. Laurel has sold more than 20 million books worldwide, and the 27th novel in her wildly popular Vampire Hunter series is Sucker Punch, a mashup of her signature blend of mystery, magic, horror, and romance. Fellow number one New York Times bestselling author Charlene Harris said of the writer, Hamilton remains one of the most inventive and exciting writers in the paranormal field. And stay tuned for an exclusive clip from the Sucker Punch audiobook, excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, read by Kimberly Alexis. In this file, Laurel and I discussed how she found her trailblazing, genre-busting style, why you have to be passionate to sustain a long-running series, how her characters take over the plot if they have better ideas, on what unsettles her and how it goes into the soup, and how to make more pages. Stay safe and stay sane out there. And don't forget to vote if you live in the United States. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files, and I am ecstatic today to be joined by Special guest, Laurel K. Hamilton. How are you surviving today? (laughs) Uh, I am doing well, Colton. Um, I am happy to be talking to you via this wonderful technology since we are all still sequestered. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about you, but um, things seem to just persist in this uh, 
you know, these kind of concentric circles of crises that we're all dealing with. Um, but yeah, hopefully uh, you're staying sane. And um, yeah, we're here to talk about all things writing. So thanks for yep. taking the time. Yeah, uh, very often, I think when we have best-selling authors on, um, we do kind of a, a superhero origin story. But I know you're a self-professed uh, bio geek and that you had kind of earlier in your career thought about going a different direction, but, and you overcame some obstacles to become this number one bestselling, uh, New York Times bestselling author. How the heck did you get here 27 books later into this fantastic, uh, Vampire Hunter series? <laughs> uh, origin story, huh? <laughs> Gosh, that just seems overarching. I was raised in the middle of farm country. Nobody I knew was anything like this. So um, the thought that I could be a writer at all was just unthinkable. So how did I get here? Um, I was very lucky. Had some fabulous teachers in high school, in Oak Hill High School, our small rural high school, uh, who helped me with giving me the writer and writer's digest because this is pre-internet about how to submit stories in a professional manner. By 17, I was already submitting stories and getting and collecting my rejection slips. And how I got to be, uh, how I got to write Anita? Well, uh, so my first novel, Night Seer, is Elves, Dwarves, and Dragons. It's much more traditional. Tolkien meets Robert E. Howard fantasy. And mm. they didn't want the second book. I wrote the second book, but the first book, as many first novels do, didn't sell well enough. So... I thought I thought my career had started, and then they didn't want the second book. And um, so my agent that I had at the time, I did a Star Trek book, uh, and I did uh, a novel for uh, – and I was just scrambling. I was going, okay, the fantasy market's gone to heck. What can I do? And I had a short story called Those Who Seek Forgiveness. And it had the best rejection notes from everybody. Everyone loved the story. Nobody knew what to do with it. But remember, this is the late 1980s. There is, I, there's no Buffy the Vampire Slayer on TV yet. So, right. you know, mixed genre was pretty much Charles DeLint and nothing. So it was in the story, Anita raised zombies. That was her day job. There weren't any, any vampires in it. And I thought, but this story seems to have the most life in it. I think I can write a book in this world. And so I sat down to write a book because... I didn't know what else to do. And as they say, um, the rest is history, except that I had guilty pleasures was rejected over 200 times because oh nobody knew what to do with it. Um, there were more publishing houses. Everybody hadn't uh, bought everybody out. So I, the horror places thought it was fantasy. Fantasy thought it was uh Science fiction. Science fiction thought maybe it was mystery. And, and they loved the book. They would give me the, some of them would even recommend eight editors at other publishing houses with other genres to send it to. But nobody knew what to do with until I got to uh, Penguin Putnam, which is now Penguin Random House. And, uh, and I got somebody that believed in me and bought it. And they say that the, uh, the opening line is what sold it to them, the old opening paragraph, and here we are. And I had a three-book contract. 
I remember thinking what a wonderful thing it was. I knew that there would be at least three books in this series and that it wouldn't die the sad death of my first series, which ended with just one because they didn't want the second book. Yeah, yeah. That's such a cool story. Yeah, I think when you talk about the genre bending stuff, it's, you know, you're a trailblazer in that kind of, uh, you know, um, as you mentioned, par- you know, mixing the paranormal, the urban fantasy piece, obviously horror and, and romance and uh, guilty pleasures, you know, obviously kicked that off and, and has really, really, really um, broke some uh, really important ground, I think, for, for authors, don't you believe? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Um, it, I didn't know I was trailblazing. I was writing something that interested me. Because my, I really believe that if the author is not having fun while they're writing and not interested in what they're writing, then, then that comes across on the page. Yeah. Um, and you've talked about that quite a bit. I think keeping the passion going for 27 books um, isn't a challenge for you, right? Because you, you've mentioned, um, you know, kind of this, the ability to keep yourself uh, or, or, you know, talk, talk a little bit about what you talk about with um, giving yourself an, kind of enough toys to, to make it interesting um, for this. When thing. I was putting together the series, um, I really, there weren't many fantasy books, uh, fantasy series that had gone on over 10 books. And, and so I went to mystery, the mystery genre, to see longstanding series and how did they keep it fresh? How did they not repeat themselves? And what I found is that even on the popular series that a lot of people were bored and you could tell that they went through a slump between book seven book five and book eight somewhere between mm-hmm. five and eight they would be a little less interested in the books they would be a little less interested in the characters and it showed the best series then would get a breath of fresh air and they would rise to the occasion again after that um, but a lot of series end around there I think the reason a lot of people never go beyond up to 10 books or beyond is because it's really hard for some people to stay interested in their world and their character. They've said everything they had to say by then, and it shows. Mm-hmm. For me, I read that, and I thought, okay, I'm going to give myself mystery. I'm going to give myself my love of horror and monster movies, mythology and folklore, which I've loved since I was a child. I'm going to give myself all these toys all these different things and mix them together. And I think that will keep me interested. And indeed it has. I think if it was a straight mystery series that I don't know if I would be as interested in it at this point, this many books in. So I think the very mix of the genres back and forth, the character growth and letting, letting thing, people change, letting the characters change, not just keeping them static, has all contributed greatly to my ability to... Um, to be still having a great time and enjoying and finding new things to do in Anita's world. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Sucker Punch is a departure for me. It's, uh, I get to do a lot more of the police procedural stuff than I have in the past. And mm-hmm. there's just so much research I haven't gotten to use yet. Both, I research real animals for my wear animals. And I research real folklore, real, as much as I can, I do anthropology books, archaeology books, and um, as much real world as I can do on all my research. And I think that gives me such a strong foundation for all the fantastic elements. Oh, for sure. 
Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. I love the, uh, the mix of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, kind of those oral storytelling traditions and of course, folklore and mythology play a big role in um keeping the genre you know very very not only interesting but also kind of as you mentioned that mystery piece sometimes has a rip from the headlines feel to it but talk a little bit about i don't know if in this at this time in history um you're feeling like you know real world events are affecting your writing or having an influence on them you know, with the immigration stuff. And obviously, um, we're having a lot of discussions about, uh, racial inequality and, and, um, police brutality, you know, do any of these kind of real life issues affect what you're working on? I mean, what happens in real world always seeps in subconsciously, whether you want it to or not, I think. Um, but, I finished Sucker Punch uh, just before lockdown happened. And my editor and my managing editor and I uh, edited it early in lockdown and were completely done with the book before uh, the tragedy of George Floyd and everything else that's come after. So, so that, weirdly, weirdly, Sucker Punch is very much about the civil rights nightmare that is the uh, execution warrant system in Anita's world. It is a book about how people could abuse that system and what the consequences of it could be. And, and the fact that, is it, is it okay? Is it okay to treat somebody who's a shapeshifter as less than you would treat somebody who is just completely human? Is that fair? No. Is that, 
is there another way to do it? I don't know. So, so it's it was accidentally a book exploring how we treat people who are other, other than us. And is it okay? Is it not okay? And it's a it's a book exploring a lot of what weirdly uh, uh, how police interact and how much level of violence is okay. Um, you know, but at the same time, you have you know police. The more real life police uh, research I do, the more my hat's off to people who do the job because it is such a, a thankless task. And I, I have had people talk to me about really violent crimes that they've worked on. And I've been very lucky in how many, how many people have, have helped me with my own research. Um, but I just write about it. I don't have to walk through the gore of, of a murder scene. And that doing it for real, I think that would get that would like really be incredibly hard to do day in and day out. Will this what's happening now impact the next book? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep thinking it's ripe for, um, of course, horror and true crime uh, plays um, kind of a role obviously in horror at times, but um, truth really does seem to be stranger than fiction right now. If you put the plot of this year in a fictional book before all this happened and you sent it to New York, you would get editors saying that this isn't, nobody would believe this. <laughs> right. It is just, just too much. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about as you're working on the next you know, kind of how you make the transition from research to then getting words onto the page. Do you, are you giving yourself some pretty, pretty loose uh, word count stuff, or are you somebody that kind of plots and plans? Um, what's the inside of your brain look like at this point? <laughs> um, I am. I will write out. I'll know the crime. I'll know the major clues. I'll know who or what done it. And I make sure or try to make sure that every mystery is needs my magic system, needs some has something in it intrinsic to my magic system, my world building. So that if you took all the fantasy elements away, that it wouldn't work the same. Because I think if you're going to make if you're going to write mystery in a fantastical world where magic works then that should be intrinsic to the mystery as well as to everything else. So um, I write a list of clues. I write a list of suspects. And the reason I write a list of suspects is sometimes I don't know which one done it early on. I'll, I'll be plotting and going along and go, ah, you know, and sometimes it's red herrings. I make a list of potential suspects that sound good so I can do red herrings and remember to do them. Uh, but I don't, I'm not a big plotter. If I do a majorly detailed outline that it writes out the energy I need to write. Hmm. I write, I write the major plot points. I will write another list of character arc plot points. And then I write in between those. And if my characters come up with a better idea, I let them, I, I let them have their, their lead and follow them for a while. Sometimes it's a rabbit hole. And it doesn't go anywhere. But sometimes it's a better idea. Hmm. I am very much a believer uh, that if my characters have a better idea, then that's magic. 
they've become alive enough to argue with me, to have an opinion. And I don't squash my own magic. Hmm. I like that. Um, do you have some, some major influences or just um, some things that are haunting you or, or sitting on your nightstand presently? Do you mean... Now I have this image of like the gargoyle sitting beside the bed going, here's your next book. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've got this. Um, do you mean impact overall or impact recently? Sure. You know, let me, let, let me walk that one back. Do you have some muses that are um, driving your creative inspiration presently? And um, yeah, then I'll follow up with, with some of the major influences that have influenced your writing over the years. Um. I, right now, I am writing the next book, and it's supposed to be a short novel, and, and I don't write short. It's supposed to be more like Jason and Micah, um, but it's getting a little out of hand, a little bigger. My agent's going to be upset with me because it's not supposed to be a whole book, but it, it's getting close. But I wanted to explore some of the characters I hadn't had a chance to. I wanted to get some of the ones that haven't been on stage. And I've actually asked my fans recently what ones that they've not seen majorly on stage. And it's interesting to me that the ones that I want on stage are the same ones they, they would like to see more of. So there's one, one or two surprises, but mostly I agree. And I wanted to have time to explore the cultures in more detail of some of the shapeshifters, which I haven't gotten to see all my research trotted out and, and put more detail into that. And so Exploring my world, exploring the characters that I haven't had enough screen time for. That's that interests me. Um, and whatever unsettles me, whatever makes me go, uh, it's usually going to be in a book later. Uh, hmm. If it bothers me enough, then it goes to the subconscious soup and I know I'll be seeing it again. Usually something has to bother me, disturb me in some way. And, um, and then it will eventually make its way on the page in some form. I like that. Whatever unsettles you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about just um, some major influences um, over the years or, or recent influences that, are, um, that you're enjoying. Um, I don't really have influences, recent influences for my fiction anymore. I'm, my voice is pretty set as a writer. Um, early on, uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, his short story is not, not so much Conan since I ended up not doing sword and sorcery, but, um, some of his horror pieces, Edgar Allan Poe, HP Lovecraft, Andre Norton. I mean, a writer, uh, for the, for what I write and mainly known for, um, 
uh, Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, Salem's Lot by Stephen King, uh, two very important influences, uh, Sheridan Lotha News, uh, Carmilla, and um, also uh, the uh, really influenced the vampires. Uh, I have I have a degree in biology. I call I'm I'm a biologist. I'm a non-practicing biologist, which means I've just never earned my living with it. And as I'm told, so have a lot of people never earned their living with their biology degree, especially if it's an undergrad degree. Um, so for the animals, it's it's really my biology that still inspires me. The real animals, uh, real real biology is so much weirder than any science fiction you will ever read. Um, so those were early influences on me. And I write about monsters and zombies and stuff because um, my mother died when I was six in a car accident. And my grandmother raised me, her mother. And my grandmother never got over the grief of it. So I was raised with just this amount of looking back at the dead, looking back. It's taken me years to realize that, that part of why I do what I do and write what I write in one of the reasons I need to raise the zombies is, uh, you know, I've had enough therapy. So I said it out loud one day and I went, you know, the only thing that would have satisfied my grandmother is if I could have raised my mother from the dead. And as soon as it left my mouth, I went, ah, shit, that's why I do this. That's why I write this. Um, if I had had a different background, I probably wouldn't write about monsters. And the fact that some of the monsters are more human and some of the human are more monstrous, again, reflects my experience with people that what you are looking on the outside doesn't mean that the person inside won't hurt you or the people that look scary sometimes are, will take better care of you than the ones that look better. I love that. Well, the 27th novel in the best-selling series is Sucker Punch and the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter novel and a brutal murder, a suspect in jail and an execution planned. But what if the wrong person is about to be killed? Of course, um, this paranormal fiction is uh, genre bending. It's fantastic. Congrats on the work. Do you have uh, one last thought for your fellow scribes on just how to keep keep going? And of course, I'll link to the book and I'll link to your home base there. Um, yeah, but any any closing thoughts? For right now, my fellow my my fellow wordsmiths, stay off the internet, stay off the news, um, protect your writing time, and when you go in to write, uh, I know it's I know I have to stay off the news. I literally have a list of do nots. Do not get online. Do not check email. Do not anything. Do not. You can look at the weather. That's it. Then go make pages. After you've made pages, then I let myself look online. Because otherwise, the headlines are eating my muse. I can't function if the next terrible thing is what I'm thinking of. So to protect your, your muse, protect your writing time, then keep yourself. Let, it's okay to be in the ivory tower for a few hours before you put your armor back on and go out there. It's okay. You don't have to be, you don't have to know the latest crisis first thing in the morning it can wait right and the crisis will still be there <laughs> well great advice and of course um, i'm sure a lot of writers are going to take that to heart it is very important um, but we appreciate your time your wisdom your expertise congrats on all your successes and uh may you stay safe and well out there you as well uh everyone that hears this message may you be safe and well and and may you protect your muse 
and create many, many wonderful things while we are all in this isolation. Try to try to find your voice while we're all tucked away. Maybe maybe we can turn it into our cave of creation and come out with better things. The tiny plane landed in the dark on a runway that felt way too short. When the plane finally skidded to a stop, I couldn't make my right hand let go of the armrest. Literally, I'd held on so tight that my hand had locked up, as if holding on tight would have done a damn bit of good if the plane had wrecked. The pilot turned his head to look at me and give me a thumbs up. I just stared at him, my heart in my throat. I was phobic of flying, and this bumpy trip in a four-seater Cessna hadn't done a damn thing to quiet my fears. He took off his headset and said, Oh, come on, it wasn't that bad, was it? He smiled when he said it. I glared at him until his smile faltered. I was projecting badass, while the only mantra in my head was, I will not throw up. I will not throw up. Only knowing that a man's life hung in the balance had gotten me to climb into the progressively smaller planes until this final one. Well, welcome to Hanneman, Michigan, Marshal Blake, the pilot said at last, and opened the door. As I pried my hand free of its death grip, I wondered again why I was doing this. Because it's your job, I thought. I kept telling myself that as I gathered my bags and fitted the big one through the door ahead of me. The pilot said, that bag's big enough to hold a body. Only if it was my size or smaller, though I guess I could cut it up and make almost anyone fit, I said, as I got the rest of me and the smaller bag through the door and down onto the tarmac. Very funny, the pilot said. I gave him the flat look until he said, what's really in the bag? Weapons, a man said, as he walked toward us in the last light of the setting sun. I'd had just a moment to see the forest, and then it was dark as if someone had turned the lights off. You know you're in the boondocks when it's that dark even before you step into the trees. In their shade, it would be cave dark. I smiled at Marshal Winston Newman. He was as tall as the first time I'd met him, as in over six feet, but had more meat on his bones as if he was either gaining weight or gaining muscle. I'd have to see him in better light to be sure whether he was hitting the gym or hitting the donuts. His hair was still short underneath his white cowboy hat, but the hat wasn't brand new anymore. The brim had been worked with his hands so that it made an almost sharp point over his face. It fit him now. When I'd first met him, the hat had struck me as a present from someone who hadn't really known him or wanted him to be more cowboy than he'd seemed. He offered to take a bag so I could shake his hand, and I let him take it. I'd have done the same for him. Thanks for flying out at the last minute, Blake. I appreciate you reaching out on this. I almost added rookie, but he wasn't one anymore. He was newer than me, but then most marshals in the preternatural branch were. There were only eight of us from the old days. Everyone else was either dead, worse than dead, or retired. Thanks for helping me out, Jim, Newman said to the pilot, who was standing by his plane watching us. The Marshan family has been around here a long time, and Bobby is my friend, Marshal Newman. I appreciate you trying to give him a chance. You understand that if Bobby Marshan did this, then I will have to execute him, Newman said. 
If he killed old man Marshan, then he'll have earned it. But Bobby has been an Iloranthrope since just after we graduated high school. He had it under control. I was surprised that Jim knew the politically correct term for cat-based lycanthropy. Sorry, for theorianthropy, which was the new term for all of it, since it didn't imply wolf like lycanthropy did. But a lifetime of using it as a general term was going to be hard to break for me. That's what everyone tells me. Thanks again, Jim. Marshal Blake and I have to get over to the sheriff's office. He started moving toward a big Jeep Wrangler that was parked in the grass beside the runway. Duke is a good man, Newman. He's just never seen anything like this. Newman kept us moving toward the Jeep as he called back over his shoulder. I'm not questioning Sheriff LeDuc's competency, Jim. Good, but you watch out for his deputy, Wagner. That made Newman stop and look back at the pilot. What's wrong with Wagner? He gets rough when he thinks he can get away with it. Does the sheriff know? Newman asked. I don't know, but everybody else in town does. Thanks for the heads up, Jim. Not a problem. I hope you and Marshal Blake work this out. Me too, Jim. Me too, Newman said as he opened the back door and tossed my bag of weapons in. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.